You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Sarah Brown graduated with her Master of Arts in Theater Education from the University of Northern Colorado and from the University of Nebraska at Omaha with a Bachelor of Arts in Theater Performance. She has worked with Nebraska Shakespeare for 16 years as an actor, director, and educator and was named Director of Education in 2013. In 2016, Sarah launched the all-female production program with Nebraska Shakespeare, titled Juno Swans, which premiered with a stage reading of The Taming of the Shrew. Sarah teaches throughout Omaha, having worked with the Omaha Theater Company for Young People, the Omaha Community Playhouse, Metropolitan Community College, the Omaha Symphony, Omaha Performing Arts, the University of Nebraska at Omaha, Creighton University, and many high schools and middle schools. Sarah Brown, welcome to the Green Room. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. I'm going to take a moment to quote William Shakespeare. Oh, please do. Who says, Mm -hmm. all the world's a stage Mm -hmm. and all the men and women merely players. Mm -hmm. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. So let's start off with the first age. Where are you from originally? I am originally from St. Louis, Missouri. All my extended family is there, and I spent very few years there. I moved to Omaha when I turned seven, and I've been here ever since. And what part of Omaha did you live in? I lived in West Omaha for most of my formative years. I went to high school at Millard North and then moved further east when I went to college at UNO. When you were at Millard, did you perform in any of the plays at Millard? I did. It was a, it's a big high school and I learned a lot because it's a competitive high school and there were a lot of really talented women that were there when I was in school. So a lot of the shows were double cast. The women's parts were double cast. So you didn't really get to be on stage until your junior or senior year. So your freshman and sophomore year, you had to do crew. If you wanted a lead in one of the shows, you had to be a spotlight your sophomore year so that you could learn and like study the people that were performing the roles that you wanted when you became an upperclassman. So it was kind of like an apprenticeship program, which I thought you didn't know that at the time, but it's really a very smart way to run such a big department. That is interesting. I never, I never would have thought of of doing it that way, but that, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what shows did you perform in when you were at Millard? Millard uh, North, I keep saying just Millard, Millard North. I did, oh, I did Camelot and I did Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I did a Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, I did a show. It was a Pink Panther show, but I can't think of the name of it. Oh, what else did I do when I was there? I guess it was only just a few shows because you were only in shows. Oh, I did um, Guys and Dolls. I was very disappointed because my name's Sarah Brown and I thought it'd be great to be like Sarah Brown as Sarah Brown, but I did not get Sarah Brown. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was a Salvation Army kid. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was a lot. We did two musicals a year and then one straight play a year. So you graduated from Miller North when? 1999. Okay. You was a youngin. Yeah. I had to think about that for a second. (laughs) Did you know when you graduated from high school that you wanted to do theater? I mean, obviously, I mean, you got a degree in theater performance, but you know, when I went to high school, when I graduated from high school and I, and I went to college, you know, the two things I was interested in was theater and astronomy. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, take classes and whatever you're interested in, and then you don't have to declare your freshman year. So was that the same way with you, or did you know theater is what you wanted to do? Oh, it's so interesting that yours was arts and science, because mine was the same. I loved biology, and I took a bunch of AP classes in science when I was in high school. And so I went to school undeclared at UNO and took a lot of theater classes, also took a bunch of science classes. And then science started, as it does when it gets into the upper echelon, uh, started to veer into math a little bit. Yes. And we got into imaginary numbers and I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> I don't like I can I can imagine in theater. I don't want to imagine in math. Exactly. Well, yeah. Y- yeah. In, uh-huh. in theater, you can talk about math like you know math. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you don't have to, to know math. understand Exactly. It. And that's, <laughs> that's how it was with me because I, you know, I took a physics class mm. in college and I went, there is like way too much, yeah. way too much math for mm-hmm. that. So now I have a big old telescope that I bring out in my backyard and that's and my that's hobby. It. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you change then and decide you wanted to do theater your sophomore year or had you done any did you audition for any of the plays that you know your freshman year I did I did do some plays my freshman year but I stayed undeclared because I didn't know if I wanted to go into more musical theater they didn't have a musical theater program at UNO they actually just got one which is really exciting but they didn't have one at the time so I would have had to do like a combination of theater and probably like a minor in music and I didn't know if I wanted to do that so I stayed undeclared that first year but I did do I did three shows that first year so I mean the writing was on the wall figured yeah she'll eventually join the department so my sophomore year is when I joined what were your favorite roles that you did when you were in college when you were at UNO I was so lucky and got to play Blanche in Streetcar uh Suzanne Supernaut was the director Suzanne Witham was Stella and Vince Carlson was Stanley and Kevin Bensley was Mitch. And like, wow, that's a powerhouse. Yeah, (laughs) it was. It was very interesting because, you know, you're 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 given these roles when you're an undergrad. I was 21 and I'm playing Blanche and like I'd love to revisit her now that I've got a little bit of life under me. But it was such a wonderful process. It was the first time that I'd ever been through a directing process that was so organic and was so ensemble based and ensemble created. And I got, I got addicted to that. And that's kind of how I started working the way that I work as an actor and the way that I work as a director, that sort of organic and more process rather than product based theater. So you graduated from UNO when? 2004. It was very important to me that I got out in four years. I took like 17 to 19 credits every semester because I was bound and determined to immediately go into a grad program. (laughs) Uh, Best laid plans. (laughs) That didn't happen. So, I mean, I was 21 and grad programs didn't need another mediocre, talented, white 21 year old woman. Like they had plenty of those. (laughs) So I went to to Erda's and I did the whole like 
process. It did not go well. And so then... And so, Erdas, can you take a moment to explain that for people yeah, who may not know what that is? It, well, it's a little different now. When I did it, they hold kind of their cattle call auditions. So they bring a bunch of grad schools in and you can pay to to audition for a bunch of different grad schools. So it's nice because you get to hit all these schools at the same time. They do one in New York, one in Chicago, and one in LA. And I did mine in Chicago. Did they still do screening when you were there? Well, I well, that was clear back in... 91. Mm. And I remember that I just went and auditioned for a bunch of colleges for grad school Mm -hmm. and didn't really get any kind of a nibble on any of those. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just said, well, I'll just go work. Yeah. They, (laughs) They did screening, which means you have a panel of three people and you're in a small room and they have to screen you before you get into see the the grad programs. Oh no, um, no, we did not have that. And I was the very last person to go on the very last day. It was three days of auditions. I knew, I don't know how I got it, but I was the very last number on the third day. Oh, that just isn't fair. Yeah. And I went into the room and <laughs> no one was in there. I walked in and there wasn't any, like there was no one behind the table. And I came out to the like moderator. I was like, uh, there's, there's nobody in the room. And she's like, what, what are you talking about? I was like, I don't know. There's nobody in there. And so she's like, oh, okay. Well, apparently they thought they were done. Like the screening panel thought they were done. And so like one person was like down at the bar and then the two other ones went back to their room and they had to call them back (laughs) to the room for me to do their, my audition for them. And of course it didn't go well and I didn't get passed through. So it was, it was a, it was a really, really good learning experience. I learned a lot and just wasn't. It wasn't the right choice for me. I had a lot to learn and I wasn't going to learn it at a school. I needed to learn it outside of a school. So it was the right decision, but it just didn't feel like that at the time. Sure. So what did you do then after you didn't get past the screening process? I spoke with a lot of artists that I really admired and kind of asked their opinion. And I heard from a lot of people well, if you don't get into a grad program, then create your own grad program. Like, what did you want to learn? What did you want to study? Get with people who are smarter than you. Get with people that have skills that you don't have and work with them. So I started kind of producing a little bit of my own work and then lucked into being one of the founding members of Blue Barn's Witching Hour. And ironically, I was there for three years and I kind of mark that as my acting MFA because it was impactful. I learned a lot in those three years. Who all was part of the witching hour at that point? Okay. There were eight of us, Barry Carmen, Suzanne Supernut, Vince Carlson, Kevin Bensley, myself, Amy James. There was somebody who was with us at the very beginning, Jessica. I'm going to forget her last name. This is terrible. Um, But she never did anything with us. She got a job in Chicago and was gone. I believe Molly Welsh was with us for the first think that might have been it. Maybe there was only, was that eight? That's eight. Yeah. And you produced your own works, correct? We did. It was all devised theater, which I had very little experience with. So we wrote all of our own work, self-produced, self-directed, self-marketed. And it was a lot of stuff that I'd never done before and learned a ton. And it was done down at the Blue Barn and Mm -hmm. it was done after (laughs) it was late night. Yeah, it was late night. Hence the name, The Witching Hour. Yeah, yeah. And it it gave us it gave us such wonderful parameters because we had to use the set that whatever the Blue Barn set was being used, their lighting plot, 
we had to use, uh, it had to be short because it started at 11 and we didn't want people to be there much past midnight. We had to rehearse late hours whenever the Blue Barn wasn't being used. And so it was, it gave us some really interesting parameters because we would be writing a play about Ophelia and there would be, the set would just be like empty space and a door. And we're like, okay, well, we've got to somehow work this door, this like freestanding door into the show. And then it was, it was, it was like, it was meant to be there. Like once you have those parameters and you work with those restrictions, it opens things up in a way that uh, I think a lot of people try to get rid of some of those hindrances because they want to be able to have a free space. But I feel like sometimes it helps, it helps kind of force some creativity when literally something is in the middle of the room, you have to deal with it. And what do you discover when you do? How long were you involved with The Witching Hour? I did that for three years. And then I got too old. I couldn't rehearse anymore at two in the morning. (laughs) So after The Witching Hour, what was next for you? I had been working with Nebraska Shakespeare ever since I was an undergrad. It's one of the great things about the program at UNO and the program at Creighton is you can get professional experience on your resume while you're still in school. So I worked for Nebraska Shakespeare for all four years that I was in college and then continued to work with them in the summer. And then ironically, the tour that they had, that's been going on for 14 years, uh, it just started when I was done with Witching Hour and they asked me to be a part of it. And that was kind of like my first kind of foot in the door to be more involved in their year round programming. And so the next step was, was Nebraska Shakespeare. Talk a little bit about the touring that happens with Nebraska Shakespeare. Yeah. So it started 14 years ago because the National Endowment for the Arts started a grant. It's a $25,000 matching grant called Shakespeare in American Communities. And so Nebraska Shakespeare had something called Shakespeare Unbound, which was week-long residencies. We would go into schools across the state and do residencies with students. There was a little performance, but it wasn't super performance-based. And so tour was taking an abbreviated Shakespeare show out into high schools and middle schools across the state of Nebraska, 75 minutes. And then there's a post-show discussion that we do after every performance to talk with the students, the community about what they saw. And then also there are like supplementary workshops that also go with the, the production so that we can have a little bit more interaction with the students can be a little more hands-on. And that happens during the school year, obviously. It does, September and October, primarily, yeah. So um, it's all local-based actors then or local-based staff members from from Nebraska Shakespeare that go out? It started that way. I think in year four, we figured out that we could bring in actors and figured out a way to house them in the fall. So now it's about 50-50. The cast is only eight people, but usually it's typically four local and four non-local. And I have to ask this just because I have a little bit of touring experience yeah. in Nebraska with Opera Omaha. You guys just get in like a passenger van and go, go drive it across yeah. Nebraska. Yeah. We started with just a 15 passenger van, like set costumes, props, all of us in a 15 passenger van. Yeah. And then as the set started getting bigger and like the production values started getting a little bit more in depth. Now we travel with a box truck for set and costumes and props. And then all of us are in the 15 passenger van. Yeah, it's very glamorous lifestyle. It is. It <laughs> is. And you travel just in Nebraska or do you also head over into Iowa? We do head over into Iowa. We do Western Iowa. It's received well, I'm assuming. It is. And I think that it is because I'll tell a brief story. 
my third year, we did Macbeth and we took it into schools. And the first two years, we were really timid about things. We did Romeo and Juliet and we did Midsummer. And I felt like I didn't know it at the time, but we were we were talking down to them. We were performing down to them because it's Shakespeare and it's really hard to understand. So let us kind of spoon feed it to you. And the the woman, Maria Vaca, who is now an OBGYN, I believe, was a beautiful actor and she was playing Lady M. And I was I was all three witches like it was kind of a uh, an amalgamation of those roles. And I was on stage when she was doing the sleepwalking scene. And as we were rehearsing it, like her lady M was just gorgeous. And as we were rehearsing it, she was so invested and like just really, really, really honest, open and vulnerable performance. And I was like, oh, these kids are going to eat her alive. She has no idea. She has no idea. Like I felt sorry for her. I was like, this is not not going to go well. And we went into, I think one of our first schools was one of our tougher schools. And I was like, well, I'm on stage with her. So like, if we need to stop the show or like, if I need to help out somehow, like I'll be there to help her. And she did it and it was beautiful. It was honest. And it was like even deeper than what we had done in rehearsal. And the kids loved it. And they leaned in and like someone was finally showing them something real. And I was like, oh, we've been underestimating them. Like we need to set the bar and then they're going to come to it every time. And so from then on, all of the shows, we challenge them every year. We challenge them with gender performance. We challenge them with difficult topics and themes and some really hyper theatricality. And every year they match us. And I think they like the fact that, that we're treating them like an adult audience and we're asking the same things of them. And that doesn't happen a lot to kids in middle schools and high schools. So I think they like that. And the other thing is, and and I don't know how far out in Nebraska you go, but I mean, you probably go into like some pretty small towns. We go pretty far west, Scotts Bluff and Garing. So we get into mountain time, which we were very excited the first year we got that far out west. But yeah, there are some, there's some pretty small schools. We can do a performance for the whole school and there's a hundred kids in the audience. Right. And I think, and, and I always like to say that I think they appreciate that because it's probably the most professional thing that they're going to see unless they do go out to Scotts Bluff or, you know, hit like a big town because there aren't going to be a lot. When I did, when I did tour with Opera Omaha, we had some young, you know, 20 something interns and we were doing Hansel and Gretel mm. and we went out to this, you know, we went out to Arapahoe, Nebraska. Yeah, and, we've been there. And, you know, we're all, and they're like, th- like the senior citizens home came and like mm-hmm. everybody came. And I remember, you know, the singers were just like, they're not going to, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to get it. It's opera. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. They're going to love it. And they did. And they were just like, oh my God, you were right. And I'm like, no, (laughs) you don't understand. It's a, it's a big deal to Mm -hmm. have, to have these tours come out. You might not think it's a big deal, but it is. And it's interesting to see them, to be a part of this program for 14 years and to see to see these students grow, to see the communities change and shift. When we first took shows out to, to these schools, it was a big deal because it was a, an abbreviated version. And so we had actors playing multiple roles. And a lot of times women had to play male roles because it's just how it happened. And that used to be something that they were so fascinated with. And that was always a question in the post-show discussion, like, what was it like to play a boy? And, you know, why'd you make that decision? And then now it's so interesting. We never get those questions anymore. Because the idea in this next generation, the idea of gender has shifted a bit. The importance of gender has shifted a bit. And so a few years ago, I played Horatio when we took 
the the show out into schools and the Hamlet, the guy who played Hamlet and myself, we had a, a close relationship. And so we were kind of concerned like, oh no, are they going to think that like there's something going on between these characters? And they, it didn't matter. Like there was never a question about Horatio's gender. And I think seeing that, and I hope we would have a little bit of a part of that, but seeing how they are, how the communities are evolving. And that's a nice segue into two things I want to talk to you about. One, your work with gender Mm -hmm. and breaking down those barriers and things like that. I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I also want to talk about Juno Swan a little bit. So Mm -hmm. which one would you like to talk about? It's hard to talk about one without the other. Right. Um, And we can talk about them together. Yeah, probably uh, Juno Swan's it's been a while with this, with this particular idea. So in 2015, I played Rosalind in As You Like It for On the Green. And it was, oh my God, it was such a great experience. Like it was one of those shows that like when you're in it, you know that something is happening, something that's like changing you forever. And we lost the last show. We started it and then it was supposed to be beautiful. There was not a storm supposed to happen. And then we lost the show at intermission. And so I didn't get to finish and I was heartbroken, like unnecessarily heartbroken. If anyone was there that night, like I just sobbed like a child. It was just, it was very difficult. And then it continued to be like, I couldn't let go of this show. And that doesn't really usually happen to me. And so I put a little pressure on that. Why is this happening? And I realized that it wasn't only the fact that it was this wonderful experience that now was over, but also I had hit I had hit the Shakespeare glass ceiling for women. Like Rosalind's the largest part you can play if you stay in the gender that you were assigned at birth. And so I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. And I knew that I had played male roles in in the on-tour production and that was really interesting, but they usually were, you know, just the roles that needed to be taken care of. Like, oh, we need a Tybalt. Sure, Sarah can do it. But it was never like the Mackers. It was never the Hamlets. It was never, you know, those large meteor roles. And so I kind of just put that in the back of my mind, like this is something I would be interested in exploring. This could be something, and I kind of researched other companies that were doing something similar. It's like this, this could be something that I'm interested in. And then luckily in 2016, On the Green decided to do an all male Taming of the Shrew, like an original practices, because it was our 30th anniversary. And just to see what having an all male company would bring to that play, because it's a really complicated, hard play, especially gender. And uh, Dr. Amy Lane from Creighton University was the director. I was lucky enough to be the assistant director, to be in the room. And Amy asked me to kind of do some, some research on gender performance to kind of help the men. I was kind of their like gender coach. And we had, we had a couple of gentlemen in the company that were the right people to have in the room. They were very curious. They were very empathetic. They were very respectful and they just wanted to learn as much as they could. And so as an ensemble, we learned a lot. And I was thinking, I was like, this is now, like, this is the time. Like, if I'm going to do anything all female, I think I've got, I think I've got an opportunity to do it this summer. So I proposed it to the staff and I was like, I would like to do a staged reading, an all female staged reading with the exact same script that the men are doing and just see if we learn anything new. Like, it's going to be really like no budget. It's just going to be us like learning and, and discovering things together and then have a discussion about it afterwards. And so we did that on the final Sunday. And it was a small audience. Most of the audience was the company of the all male production, but we had, we learned so much. I stupidly or smartly, however you want to look at it. I played Petruchio and I also directed it because I'm an idiot. (laughs) 
because, well, and that's how the, the production, that's how the Juno Swans kind of started. I thought of it as, well, this is what I want. Like, I want to play these roles. So thinking back on it, it was pretty, it was pretty selfish endeavor starting it. But then sitting in this room, having this discussion with all these women and then talking to them afterwards and how much this experience meant to them. I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with me, but I have an opportunity to really create something that I think the theater community needs. I think the Omaha community needs. I think these women need. And it went really well. It was well received. So the next year we did a reading. We were lucky enough to partner with the Blue Barn. And we did Richard III because I wanted to do like one of the big heavy hitter roles. But also I didn't want to give that just to one woman. I wanted every woman to be able to have kind of the experience of, of speaking some of those words. Uh, Richard III is one of the top five of Shakespeare's canon. And so we divided the part up. And so different, a different woman played Richard III in each scene. And that was really fascinating because each woman brought something completely different to the production. And then the next year we did Julius Caesar. And again, I was like, well, let's experiment with it. So we changed all the pronouns and all of the characters were women. So it was women playing women just to see what that would do, how it would change things. And it actually was really fascinating because I've seen a lot of productions of Julius Caesar and being able to really embrace like the feminine perspective of it opened up a lot of that text that I hadn't anticipated. And so that went really well. And because this program had kind of been growing and people were really starting to become interested in it. And I'm assuming your audiences have grown. They have. Yeah. Our, uh, for Richard III, we did one performance, but it was standing room only. And then so we did two performances of Julius Caesar. Same thing happened. People sitting in the booth, people sitting in the aisles. And so it was kind of the writing on the wall that maybe this is something we could bring to a bigger audience. And so we were greenlit to bring the show to, or to bring Juno Swans to On the Green. And we knew we were doing Hamlet and All's Well That Ends Well this summer. And there was discussion about which one should be the all-female. And initially, I mean, who doesn't want Hamlet? Like mm-hmm. I was like, oh, especially because it's the largest male role. I was like, this would be so great. There's so much we could do here. And then I realized that I was choosing Hamlet because I was scared of doing All's Well. All's Well is a really challenging play. It's lesser known. There's some really complicated things that happen that are really uncomfortable. And so I knew it. I knew it had to be All's Well. I was like, darn it. Like, this is the one I'm scared of, which means it's the one I should do. So, so yeah, All's Well That Ends Well will be the Juno Swans all-female production. And it's going to be on the green. It will be on the green. And there was a few things that I was, that are kind of attributes of Juno Swans that I was trying to bring as much of that program to on the green. So like the post-show discussion that normally we have with the reading, I think that's really important. The discussion about what we just experienced and why we did it this way and especially bringing it to a broader audience. There's going to be people that are like, why are they doing this? I don't get this. And so we'll have a post-show discussion on the green after every performance. So anyone that wants to have a conversation about what they just saw can stay and chat with us a bit. So when are the, when are the performances and there are multiple? Yes. So we do the last two weeks of June, the first week of July. So June 19th is when we'll open All's Well. And then we'll do that for that first weekend. And then Hamlet will open on the 29th. Is that how that works? <laughs> Whatever that next Thursday is. Oh, it's terrible. I should know these. And then in the final week, we'll do in rep. All's Well and Hamlet will be in rep. And then we'll close on July 7th. So June 20th through July 7th. 
And then when does Juno Swans, how does that fit in between the two of these houses? Say what you did. It's in, it is one of the main stage productions. So normally Shakespeare on the Green does two main stage productions. Oh, Juno so it's Swans going to be an taking. actual third. Yep, it's taking. So it's going to be a fully realized production? Or it, is is. It, it is. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's one of the full Shakespeare on the Green shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is very. We that got is promoted. Very, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Talk a little bit then, if you would, because now that you've been involved with uh, and created Juno Swans, you have this idea about exploring genders. Mm-hmm. You now have like a workshop that you do. Yeah. It's something that started when we took the year that we did As You Like It on the green. We also took As You Like It into schools and I directed it and it ended up being my master's thesis. And my master's thesis was focused around gender performance. And so I wanted to kind of put pressure on the the gender performance that we see in All's Well when we see Rosalind become Ganymede and we we see like that relationship. And the more research I was doing, the more I was discovering that not only in theater are we performing gender, but we're performing gender across the board. Like it's something that we have been taught reading a lot of Judith Butler, learning all about how we, how it's more nurture versus nature and what that means for people who don't necessarily fit in one camp and the idea of having gender be really fluid and have it be something that can shift day to day, moment to moment was something that was really fascinating to me. And I thought because of the work that I was doing with Juno Swans, because a lot of the times I was limiting myself towards what I thought the story needed in terms of gender when really we can, we can kind of remove the pressure of that. Like what happens if we take away all the men that are in this story when it's usually completely populated with men, what, what do we learn with that? And I think starting to do workshops, especially with high school students, I was lucky enough to go to, to ACTF this past January in Sioux Falls and taught gender performance workshop for like 50 theater kids that were so excited to be there and teaching the workshop. And then in between, there's a lot of discussion that happens to talk about like their personal experience and what they see and, and their, their acceptance and their openness and their empathy with things that are different than themselves is something that I never experienced at their age. Like things were very black and white and there's now a new embracing of gray and things that don't necessarily need to fall into a category. And maybe I don't understand it, but if, because it's not how I describe myself or how I personally feel, but they're so, they're so welcoming and empathetic. And I learn so much from that generation about how to use my vocabulary respectfully, working on pronouns and trying to to keep that in my conscious and how I use, how I address people instead of using guys, trying to, you know, trying to keep the language that I use as gender neutral as possible to be as inclusive as possible. And so I'm learning a lot there and hopefully going to take everything that I learn and start to uh, start to spread it to a larger audience, especially this summer. Do you find when you do these gender workshops, and I know you've done it with women and men, mm-hmm. do you find that, well, I guess I'll ask this, is there one gender that's more open to the workshop than the other? 
Or do you find that both are equally open to exploring new ideas? I think. And I'm not trying to. No, I'm not trying to. Great question. I'm not trying to call out one gender over another, but I'm just I'm just curious. I think they both want to be open. I think one gender, sadly, has a lot of fear. And it's it's because of it's because of the 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 norms, the gender norms that we have established in our society. Women have successfully maneuvered our way across the gender line into masculinity. The way that we dress, the 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 jobs that we can have that are socially acceptable for us to have. Women uh, gender neutral now has some masculinity in it, and and women can be very comfortable in that. A woman wearing pants and boots and short hair is totally acceptable. A man wearing long hair and a dress and nail polish is not acceptable or in in a lot of circles is not acceptable. And so it is harder for men especially to access that vulnerability and that openness in order to embrace their femininity because it's something that has been strategically kind of taught out of them as they have grown up. So it's more difficult, I think, for men to really let go because of the fear of, uh, of, of showing that feminine side that I believe all men have. I believe we're all, we're all some level of gender fluid, but it's more difficult for them to let down their guard and, and show that side of themselves because it's seen as weakness. So yeah, I would say it's harder for men. From a performance perspective, mm-hmm. What is the benefit of an actor, male or female, Mm -hmm. tapping into both sides Mm -hmm. to create a role? Mm. Is there a benefit? Oh, yeah, there is. I think empathy is the first one. Being able to empathize with something other than yourself is going to make you a better actor across the board, regardless of what you're empathizing with. But gender is a big one. The all male Taming of the Shrew that we did, the gentleman that played Bianca was very frustrated after a rehearsal. And he's like, I'm in this first scene. And I, and I, I had played Bianca a couple of years before. And so he's like, I don't understand. Like, what did you do? He's like, I don't like, I'm being talked about. I'm being pointed at. I'm being like on display and I don't have any lines. And it's super frustrating. And I was like, yeah, welcome to being a woman in Shakespeare. Like that's what it's like for all of us. Even the big roles are minuscule compared to the big roles of men and the percentage of male lines. And like, that was a little bit life-changing for him. And from there, he's started to discover that side of himself. And like, and I don't want to speak for him, but like there's a new understanding and a new empathy for not only the feminine side of the characters that he's playing, but also the women that he's playing opposite. And I think that will make an artist better. Also, I think, especially if you're doing Shakespeare, man, Shakespeare's so good. The more I dive into his work, the more he wrote for humanity and not for gender. There's so much stereotypical masculinity in Shakespeare's female roles and so much stereotypical femininity in Shakespeare's male roles that if you can access both of them, if I can see a Richard III that like, you know, is aggressive and violent and bloodthirsty, but also vulnerable and open and heartbroken and lovesick. Oh my God, I'll watch that for days. And so if you have that, if you have that gamut, 
in terms of emotion. And I think you find that sometimes when you tie emotion to a specific gender. I am not, when it comes to like reading plays, I'm not necessarily up on the newest plays. So Mm -hmm. I don't know necessarily how much you branch beyond Shakespeare with other plays, but we'll take men on boats, for instance. Now there's, now we're starting to see playwrights who kind of tap into Mm -hmm. both sides Do you notice that happening more as society changes and we start to get a little more fluid Mm -hmm. with gender? Do you notice the theatrical world kind of embracing that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think theater is a great mirror to our society and I think it is reflecting what is happening in our world currently. So yeah, I think like a, like a, a men on boats or like a musical, like fun home, like that is something that is going to really be as popular as it is because it's really speaking to a large group of, of our society and people can see themselves on stage. They see something they've gone through reflected on stage and that, that ties them to it emotionally. Also, I think women are writing. We're starting to finally get some really great contemporary plays that are written by women and now we're getting their experience which is going to give us more more female characters more female perspective and i think that will more accurately reflect our current our current society it's interesting sometimes when people ask me what i'm doing and i say that i'm doing men on boats mm-hmm. and i oh well, what's it about and, oh you know it's about the expedition down the grand canyon and then, you, you know, you, you say that it's, you know, it's women playing mm-hmm. men and people kind of look at you and like, eh, you know, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, yep. it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing. You know, you mm-hmm. have to look, be, you have to look beyond the gender and why, yeah. why can't, yeah why can't women right. do it? Yeah. And also it's a very specific choice that that playwright made to, to, to write this play and then have it all be women. And so it's so wonderful to be able to put pressure on that play and say, why, why, why is it important that these are female characters? And why is it important that there is this stylistic performance quality to the play? And so she didn't, I think I'm speaking for the playwright who's not in the room, but I feel like she didn't want such dead on masculine performances that no one in the audience would know it's women playing these parts. Like she wanted, she wanted the femininity, the female quality, or the fact that these are women playing these roles to show through. So like what she did, because, you know, because I remember reading that, you know, that somebody, you know, the question was, well, why did you write it with all women? And Mm -hmm. she's like, because, she had, you know, had read the story about this and, and was like, well, it's such a fascinating story. It just so happened that it was men and, and mm-hmm. what it could have been women. Why, yeah. why wasn't it women? Right. And then it was, well, let's explore that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's explore that, you know, women, why, why not? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And what a great opportunity to give to women now, like the opportunities that women were denied when this actual expedition was happening, giving that opportunity to explore that now I think is really beautiful. Now there's something else that Shakespeare, Shakespeare on the green is doing. You're involved with the book of will. 
Yeah. So our next season for year 2020, so year uh, 2019, we're labeling it our female forward season. So we have our all female all's well that ends well. Also our Hamlet will be very female heavy in casting. We will have a female Hamlet. So it's a kind of a female forward season. Our Othello that we're taking on tour, Iago is going to be a female uh, Othello is going to be a female. So it's, it's really now, kind of exploring that's that. That's going to be. Yeah, I'm so excited. That's going to bring an interesting dynamic yeah. to that relationship mm-hmm. between yeah. Othello and, and Iago. Yeah. And then Desdemona will be played by a man as a man. So we're switching the genders of that sure. marriage, which I think is kids are going to, we're going to have a great discussion about it, which is wonderful. So this year, female forward, very excited about that. And that's always been a really strong passion of mine. But also, I know some really wonderful men that are open and empathetic and talented and creative and the people that you want in the room. And so I didn't want the artistic kind of focus for Nebraska Shakespeare to be a female focus. This year is absolutely, I'm really excited about that. But moving forward, I wanted it to be more about equality. So men had the first 400 blah, blah years. We're going to have one year to really shake it up. And then next year, we're going to go forward with 50-50 casting. So across the board, we'll do 50-50 male, female casting. And we're doing Richard III for On the Green. And then we're going to do Book of Will, which will be our very first female playwright on Shakespeare on the Green in 34 years. It'll be our very first lady, Lauren Gunderson. Woo! And what is the Book of Will about? Such a great question. It is a contemporary play written by Lauren Gunderson. If you've seen in Omaha, her productions uh, at the Blue Barn was Silent Sky and then most recently um, I and You. So if you saw any of those, that's that same playwright. And then there was a reading of Book of Will that happened at the Omaha Community Playhouse a few weeks ago. Basically, the Book of Will is taking Shakespeare's uh, company, his like lead actors, his friends, his the people that were closest to him. It's talking about them putting together the first folio. And the first folio is the first printed book of Shakespeare's plays. And it was printed 12 years, sorry, 16 years after he died. So Shakespeare never saw his plays in a book. And I'm, I'm not sure. I wonder if anyone asked him now if he would be happy that they were published. I think a lot of people now that we have them in a book, read them on the page. That's how kids study them in school. And I think that would make him really sad because I think his plays are meant to be seen and experienced rather than read, but they wanted them to be, what's the word? I can't like accessible. Yeah. Accessible. They wanted to be recorded. Recorded. It's not the word. It shouldn't have taken me that long to think of recorded <laughs> anyway, uh, to, to be able to, for us to have them 400 years later, because if they did not put these plays into this book, we wouldn't have them. We might have a few, but we wouldn't have as many as we have. And so it is kind of their journey of trying to collect all the plays, because a lot of times when they were writing scripts, you would get a script with just your lines. So it's not the way that we think of plays and screenplays nowadays where you have the full thing. So they had to basically piecemeal these plays together and then publish them. And of course, publishing was very expensive. It was very hard to do. So it's their journey kind of saying goodbye to this friend and this artist that they know is going to be the best of their time, the best of our time. And then also the, the journey of making sure that these plays are preserved. That's the word. They are preserved for future generations. 
And the only reason we have them is because of those people. Is this the first contemporary play that's been done? We did Two Two Gentlemen of Verona, the musical a while ago, which was text. It was Two Gentlemen of Verona text. And then it was, there were songs and the songs were not Shakespeare text. So that I guess was considered contemporary. And then we've done complete works of William Shakespeare abridged twice. So it will be our fourth contemporary, but this will be our first time doing a, a so recent of a contemporary play. So your goal moving forward then is to have 50-50 casting in the future. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of something that was started, I believe, by Santa Cruz Shakespeare a, a couple of years ago. And they kind of threw a gauntlet for all Shakespeare companies and said, hey, let's all be 50-50 by 2020. And we had kind of heard that and we're like, that's a really great goal. That's something that we should try to do. So we've been moving toward it last year when we did King John and uh, Much Ado. Technically on on the, the cast list, we had 50-50 casting in terms of, of our company. But in terms of line delineation, character roles, payment, it was still very much male heavy. So going through and kind of keeping that in mind in terms of not having, you know, women play the small soldier parts, having, having it be equal across the board, having our equity be equal, having the payment be equal. So really going 50, 50 across the board. What other visions do you have for Nebraska Shakespeare moving forward? How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so many, so many ideas, so many things that I would, that I would love to do. And at first when I was given the opportunity to to be the artistic director of this of this company that I've worked for for so long and have loved for a really long time there are some really big ideas and like we can expand and we can we can have longer runs and all of these things and then starting to think about what we do and in, and thinking of of how do we deepen what we already do how do we enrich what we already do how do we connect with our community. So not necessarily looking at things in terms of bigger is better, but more connected and more accessible is better. So that's kind of the goal of, of moving forward is how can we have people feel comfortable coming to the park? How can we have it be engaging and professional and dynamic, but also really accessible and entertaining and fun and something you want to be a part of we're already a little bit up against a wall because it's Shakespeare. And especially in this country, there's a, a bit of um, a bit of a thought that Shakespeare is elevated and heightened and not for me and boring. And I didn't get it when I was in school and they talk weird and they wear weird clothes. So how do we how do we get rid of those barriers and how do we have people understand that Shakespeare is for them and was written for them? probably more so than the people that think Shakespeare was written for them and have them feel welcome, all ages, all ethnicities, all walks of life, and have them be able to feel like coming to Shakespeare on the Green and seeing our programming is as comfortable as coming home. That's a big challenge. We'll see how we do. (laughs) I think you're up for the challenge. I think so too. And I've got a really great crew of people around me. That was kind of one of the first things that somebody said, like the best advice that I was given when I was like, I've got this position and I'm excited and really scared. So, so the interim tag is taken off? Interim tag's not taken off. It's something that actually I'm really embracing 
the interim title because I think it's a really great, it's really great for the company, even though I've been around in the company for a very long time, I've never been the person making the calls. And so I want the company to make sure that where I'm, where we're headed is where they want to go. And I want to make sure that I'm the right leader for this company. I don't want it to be something that is, I was, I've been here the longest. So you, you get to do this. I want, if this company is going to grow in the right way, it needs to be the right person at the helm. And I want to make sure that I'm that person. So 2019 is kind of like, cool, Sarah, do what you want to do. And if it, if it is something that the company decides is the direction that they want to go and we see we see Nebraska Shakespeare flourishing in the ways that we want it to under my leadership, then I would love to stay and I hope they would love to keep me around. So we'll know at the end of this year. What's your favorite color? Green. A lot of people say green. Now that's not because of Shakespeare on the green. <gasps> Oh, I wish I could say that it is. Um, No, I just really, I love being outside. And there's just something about, there's something really fresh and really alive about that color. And I don't, I don't own a lot of green things. I don't have like a lot of green clothes or anything like that. It's not a color that I like to put on myself. It's just a color that I find when I'm around, especially if it's like in nature, I find really calming. If you could go back in time and meet any person, who would you like to meet? Oh, I mean, I want to say William Shakespeare, but then I, I don't think I do because what if he's not what I expect? And I don't, I don't, I've never been somebody that cares a whole lot about his life. I know it affects his plays, but I'm, I don't really care. Did he like, did he have a mistress? Was he gay? Like, I don't really care. The plays we have and the plays are beautiful. And so I, I don't. I don't know. I feel like I feel like I would be too scared to meet him because if he's not what I want him to be, it would affect how I view his work. You know, like when like a famous actor or something does something horrible and you're like, well, I can't watch that anymore. So like that, I feel like that would taint that for me. Mm. Eleanor Roosevelt, I'd have tea with her. Is there a Shakespeare role that you haven't tackled that you would love to tackle? Macbeth. Hands down. I think it is how a lot of people view Hamlet in the in the play and in that character. That is Macbeth for me. It is some of the most beautiful language. It is that character is so layered and is so complex. And I feel it's really interesting because I think Shakespeare did this in a couple of plays. Romeo and Juliet's another one where he switches the roles in terms of gender, like Lady Mac tends to have some more masculine qualities. And I feel like Mac has a bit more femininity in him. And I think that would be really, really fun to explore. Yeah. Macbeth. What's your least favorite Shakespeare play? Do you have one? (laughs) Is this not Um, a good question to ask? No, it's a great question to ask. It's a great question to ask. And usually if I have one that is my least favorite, I tend to try to figure out why it's my least favorite. And like, it's usually my least favorite because it makes me uncomfortable. And then why does it make me uncomfortable? And is uncomfortability a bad thing and all of that? I would say, maybe it's not my least. It's a beautiful play. Oh, it's such a beautiful play. And I think maybe I just need to have a production of it that, that opens it up for me. But I have, I have such a really hard time with King Lear. 
it's beautiful. It's so well written, but there's something about, there's something about the character of Lear that I have a really hard time. I have a hard time finding anyone in that play to relate to or connect with. And those are the plays that I struggle with the most when I can't find my way in as an audience member. And I've seen some beautiful productions. I was in a beautiful production of it, but there's something, and maybe I'm not the right age. Maybe I need to get older and start to see my life in the way that Lear sees his life. But that's one that I've always, that I've always struggled with, which probably means I need to explore it more. But yeah, King Lear has always been one that's been challenging. What show has been most produced at Nebraska Shakespeare? It is Taming of the Shrew because Taming of the Shrew is the very first show that Nebraska Shakespeare ever did. So every 10 years it gets produced again. So it's been done first, 10th, 20th and 30th. So it's been produced four times. So it's the most. If I'm still around when we hit our 40th, I don't know if I'll do that play. And if we do, because that play has a lot, it's very challenging play. I would be interested interested in exploring that play as our tragedy instead of our comedy. We usually pick a tragedy and a comedy for Shakespeare on the Green. And I think if Taming of the Shrew was explored with like its true, with its true level of violence, I think it could be really fascinating for an audience to experience because it is, there are things that get glossed over. There are things that get cut, how women are treated and how they are broken in that play is something that doesn't get fully explored a lot because it's funny and it's, you know, it's a, it's a bossy woman and she gets put in her place and, but yeah, but there's also uh, high levels of abuse and starvation and isolation and things that, that happen to particularly the the character of Kate and really putting some pressure on that. Cause I think Shakespeare was commenting on it. Sure. He was doing it in a way that his audience would find it acceptable, but also I think, I think there was an underlying message in that play that we could put some pressure on. Is there a play that hasn't been tackled by Shakespeare on the Great? There are a couple. Uh, we've never done Cymbeline. Uh, <laughs> this is the, which Cymbeline is such a beautiful play. Let me tell play. you like a really brief story about oh, Cymbeline. Please do. Oh, yes. this, is, this is not a good story about Cymbeline. Oh, okay. So <clears throat> a really brief story that will go on far too long with me. <laughs> when I was in college down in Lincoln, I don't even remember what the Shakespeare play was that they were doing, but we had to come in. We had to have obviously a Shakespeare play. We had to have a monologue Mm -hmm. and Amy Lane and I went to school together. So I contacted Amy and I said, Amy, what should I do? You know, I wasn't all that familiar with a lot of Shakespeare. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to go in with Romeo and Juliet because everybody does that. And she said, do Cymbeline. And so she gave me the monologue. Which one was it? Do you remember? Was it Inigen? I, I honestly don't remember. Okay, okay, I, I don't remember. But here's what I here's what I do remember. Uh-huh. And this is this is great. A great lesson for all theater people. OK. Read the play. Oh, yeah. Read the play. Uh huh. So she yeah. gave me the monologue. She's like, this is this monologue. This is great. Perfect yeah. for you. Great. I memorized it. No, I didn't read the play, which is why I can't tell you. Sure. Still have course. never read the play. Yeah. So, so I get in for the audition mm-hmm. and, and do the first line of the monologue, went up, mm-hmm. remembered a line about halfway through the monologue, said that, <laughs> went up again, said like the last two lines of the play uh-huh. and it was like Shakespeare in less than a minute. Surprisingly, I wasn't cast. 
That's disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, I wasn't cast. And the really sad thing about that was, was that uh, for like the next two and a half years, whenever I auditioned for a play, mm-hmm. even with monologues that I had read the play, knew the monologue backwards and forwards. When I got up to audition, I went up on it because psychologically mm-hmm. I was, and eventually mm-hmm. broke through that. But that's my Shakespeare in less than a minute and with Cymbeline. So yeah. I understand why it has hardly been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So Cymbeline, you haven't uh, done Cymbeline. We haven't done Cymbeline. We haven't done Henry VIII. Mm. We haven't done, well, there are some that we've done, some of the lesser knowns that we've done as, as director's readings. So we've, we're doing Time in of Athens this Saturday. So that would be Saturday, April 6th. Yes. So by the time you by hear time, this. You missed it. You missed it. Unless you were there and you were, and, and it you was thoroughly wonderful. enjoyed it. It was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yes. And again, female forward. So we're having a there female time in Susie Bear Collins nailed it. I'm sure I'm going to say this now, even though it hasn't happened because yeah. she of course will nail it. So that's a, that's a very, that's a, a lesser known play. We did a Coriolanus as a reading. Uh, All's Well started as a reading. All's Well that ends well. It's actually our first time ever doing that on the green. So that's exciting to have that one. What else haven't we done? We haven't done Richard two on the green. And then there are some like outliers plays that like Shakespeare wrote, but he also wrote with other people like Cardenio and uh, uh, Two Noble Kinsmen. So those are, are not necessarily, there's a lot of Shakespeare companies where it's their goal to like complete the canon. Like I want to do all of the plays. And I think that's an admirable goal, especially if you're a theater company that has a season of eight to 10 shows. Absolutely. You can kill one of your slots, not kill, but like you can risk one of your slots with a lesser known play. Sure. It's harder when we just do two in the summer and one in the fall. And we're, of course, limited to what we can take into schools. So it's for me, the goal isn't about checking that box with the canon, but bringing plays that the audience will will love and not limiting them just to the Romeo and Juliet's and the Hamlet's and the Macbeth's. Like, I think, I think our audience can enjoy a lot of Shakespeare's canon, but some of those outlying plays are outlying for a reason. And so maybe we don't need to explore them until Nebraska Shakespeare expands its season. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Have you had a lot of plays that have been rained out Mm. or stormed out? Yeah. It's hit and miss every year. Some years we don't lose anything. And then usually those years we have the opposite problem of like, it's 104 degrees at eight o'clock at night and you just sweat and the audience sweats. So that also has a problem. The, I think it was Romeo and Juliet, my very first year with Shakespeare on the Green. So I think this is in year 2000. I think they only got two out of seven productions. Like they got every other one rained out. Yeah, we get, we get rain outs. I have to remove all weather apps off of my phone when Shakespeare on the Green starts because otherwise I become obsessed with the weather. So it's it's good for my mental health to be like, it's out of my hands. If it happens, we'll make a call. But typically people are pretty good if one gets rained out or we get rained out halfway through, they'll come back or see another production of it. It's It's hard when it's the final one. The only one that has been rained out as our final production that I've been a part of was As You Like It. Yeah. Yeah. Rue that day. But it was good because I never finished it. And because I never finished As You Like It, I had a drive to create something new. So even though at the time it felt like the worst thing that could happen, it was the best thing that could happen. Sarah Brown, thank you for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, let's end it with that. That was great. (laughs) What's your favorite color? 
Blue. What's your favorite breakfast cereal? Grape nuts. Who likes grape nuts? That's insane. What do you like about grape nuts? The crunch. Do you and eat it like like cereal, like with milk, or do you put it with like yogurt, or like what oh do you yeah, have no, in no, it? No, 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 with milk and no sugar. I mean, I it's wow. like it's like eating gravel, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That should be their that should be their tagline. It's like eating gravel and I love it. That's fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other guy.